Greetings in the Master's name. The title of the message this morning is Finding Jesus. I thought about uh, waiting till later to give you the title uh, so you could understand more why that is the title or uh, and the focus, the emphasis there. But in that title, Finding Jesus, there's a problem right away with the title. Now, what's the problem with the title? Now, how's that? Say it again. Okay. Yeah, you're you're uh, you're you're actually right on target there. Uh, anybody else thinking along that line? What are you thinking? Oh no, he's not lost. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, anything else? What they didn't read. Jesus is speaking you, not you and him. Okay, can somebody quote me Luke nineteen ten? You could if you knew if you knew the when you memorize verses, if you'd memorize the verse and the reference with it, then you could. Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It, but it's so it's not, first of all, us finding Jesus. It's Him, it's God reaching down to us. Uh, and you know, as far as God reaching down, it was down, down, down that He had to reach for us. And, and God desiring fellowship, it's uh, the first uh, couple lessons in the, uh, in the, uh, book we use that uh, people getting ready for baptism are going through and it talks about fellowship with God and, and how God desires fellowship with us and so he desires fellowship he's the one that's seeking sinners and so Romans okay Romans 5 8 somebody quote that what is it uh, well okay maybe it sort of sort of that's it. That's it. So while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and so that's God. Reach, God's finding us. God reaching out to us. And uh, I, uh, I often, or sometimes at least, in um, thinking, uh, I, I, I songs come to mind. And um, this song is not in uh, a number of our many of our hymnals. I don't think, but love found me. So I think about you know, finding Jesus. I think about God finding us, and I think God found me. God found me, and that that didn't sound quite right. And I was trying to get it. So it's "Love Found Me" is the name of that song. Uh, it's it's kind of a light song, but the the truth is um, is uh, still there. Went out in sin and darkness, lost love, found me, and so forth and so on. First um, John four nineteen. Who can quote that? And you all know that one too. We love him because he first loved us. So he was first. Now, what birthed this sermon or this title or this strain of thought was Madonna House. And I've talked to some of y'all about Madonna House, but I have a cousin who's been part of that Madonna house for like 40 years and my uh, that's in Canada 
my brother uh, this summer. I thought it'd be nice if some of us cousins would go see her. I'd never been up there, so he got a number of us together and uh, took us up there in his van. And uh, Madonna House is a lay Catholic community. It's, uh, I say lay Catholic because it's not, well, what's the difference? I mean, like the ladies, there's about 100 ladies there, but they're not nuns. Uh, there are about 15 priests there, maybe 45 men. But it's this, it's this uh, community that it's a self-sufficient community. It's, you might say, a little bit like Hutterite community, but not exactly. But they're self-sufficient. They have their farm. Um, they milk about seven cows or eight and uh, extra milk that they don't need to make cheese and, and uh, do their own butchering and stuff like that. Uh, but it's... Um, it, it, it's a, uh, like I say, it's a lay Catholic community. And, okay, so they take, um, to join that community, they, they, they make three promises. They don't call them vows because, like I say, it's a lay movement. But the three promises are, are poverty, chastity, and obedience. And uh, anyway, it was very fascinating to me. Uh, a lot of things I could appreciate about it or I could, identify with um, but uh, I asked my I asked my uh, cousin and uh, I said uh, well we okay so like the ladies and so on you know they live in dorms and so on everything's not exactly primitive but it's simple okay and um, it, but, but while we were there, they gave her a little cottage to be in so that we could visit with her. We had several days there to visit with her. And one afternoon, we were sitting around, you know, just people like talking, you know. I, I, I like to find out what makes people tick. Uh, so I said to her, I said, um, I said, what were you searching for? You know, in this thing of coming to Madonna House. And she said, what was I searching for? She said, that's a good question. And she said, uh, I don't know her exact words, but as I recall, was the idea of, of a connection with Jesus. And she talked about the Eucharist. When you take the Eucharist, you know, and it's the body and blood of Jesus. And my sister said, well, there's nothing in Scripture about that. And I knew right away where she was going to go. Where did she go? The, my cousin, not my sister. Where, right away. When my sister said there's something in Scripture about that, right away, my cousin, she went to a Scripture. Uh, I think it's 6. Uh, but anyway, uh, John six thirty three. Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And uh, But anyway, she, uh, she mentioned that. But then she said, uh, there was a young fellow there, and I had talked to him a little earlier. Um, Jeremiah was his name. I don't know if that was his given name or the name he took or what, but he, uh, he was a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. Young fellow. Anyway, she said to him, said, you explain it. You can explain it better than I can. So anyway, we talked about that. But um, so, And it wasn't right at this time, but it was somewhere along the line in, in our discussions that she said to her, the gospel is Matthew 25. 
see this lake community and their their promises of poverty and so on. But they serve they serve each other, and they serve in the needs in the community. And so Matthew twenty five, she said to her, the gospel is Matthew twenty five, and you know what Matthew twenty five says? It says, you know, at the end time, uh, when when everything's collected before God, and, and and it's the sheep and the goats, and who are the sheep? And they said, you know, uh, we don't know why we're why we're the sheep, and they and Jesus said, because when you saw the needs around you, you met those needs. And and uh, and that that's the ones that were acceptable. So she wasn't that. So to her, I mean, that was that was um, there was some truth in what she said. Yeah, but thinking about that and all these people that joined, some I was talking to somebody recently about this and and some about this community and su- sustainable or self-sustaining and so on. And okay, he said, well, not if they you know take vows of chastity, but it's been going on since the 1940s, and so they attract people. They attract people, all different kinds of people, and uh, some of them from other religious persuasions. And some of them, like from uh, atheist position, they hear about to come there. What is it? What is attractive? You know, well, I, I had to think about the early monastic communities, and I haven't studied them that much. But, you know, people join these monastic communities, get away from uh, the, the degradation, the rottenness of Roman society and, and whatever else was going on. You get out here, you know, and you, you just kind of live together and you're just away from all that whatever i wonder if it's not some of that i don't know uh, people with all their different backgrounds and what they were searching for and what was going on in their lives and who knows but they find out about this place and and uh so see i think i was going to mention this later but i'm not sure where but so i'll just mention it now it comes to mind right now but so so a person goes to or you hear about it, i don't know how people hear about it or learn about it or whatever some of them were some of them were catholics to start with you know and they just kind of joined this thing was a little more uh, involved, so to speak. Uh, but when you go there, you I so my cousin, it would have been probably in the late 70s, somewhere, well, actually, yeah, that she would have visited there. She didn't become a full-fledged member until 1988. But, so you visit. Um and you, maybe it rings the bell with you. So you go, and when you decide this is for you, you make a one-year promise, those promises, uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And you make a one-year promise. At the end of one year, make a two-year promise. At the end of two years, Make another two-year promise. After five years, if you decide it's still for you, then you make your lifetime promises. So it's not just, hey, come one, come all. I mean, it's a serious business. So, but thinking about my cousin and her journey, she uh, got an RN here, I suppose, from EMC nursing program. And then she nursed a while uh, in Michigan. And then she went to Goshen and got her BSN. And then in hearing her tell about it, it wasn't like she expected any of these. She, did, she, 
she hadn't she hadn't planned out this journey, okay, but it just kind of came to be. So after she got her BSN, then she spent four years in the seminary, and she came out as a Mennonite pastor, which in the late 70s was still a fairly unusual thing. And so I don't know if there wasn't a church in the U.S. that was uh, open to or what. But anyway, she took a church in Ottawa, Michigan, in Ottawa, Canada. And so she was there for two years, and then it was soon after that that she transitioned to this Catholic community. So that's an interesting journey, to say the least. Um, So Madonna House is where my cousin found the intimate connection with Jesus that her heart was calling for. Why did she not find it in her first 40 years in the Mennonite church? see and in in going where I'm going in a message I'm not necessarily trying to be judgmental or condemning but it's what and trying to think through this uh, this is where my mind went in scripture and I'd like for you to turn to John 14. I think it applies to different people that have somewhat been at sea in life. And, um, well, my cousin, two of her brothers, neither one of them have very much for religion. And they would have grown up in the same conservative Mennonite setting she did. And when I say conservative, things were moving pretty fast there in the 60s and 70s at uh, EMC and so on. But, uh, okay, John 14, verses 15 to 18. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive... Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. So there you have the indwelling Spirit of God. And But what does it say? If ye love me, keep my commandments. That's the condition or the prerequisite. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. That's the indwelling presence. Uh, Going down to verses 20 and 21. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And in verse 23 yet, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So uh, that's the text. If you want one verse for the text, it could be 23 
So God dwelling in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, confirming that I am his and he is mine, and obedience is essential. So we walk with him. We live to the best of our knowledge. And this comes pretty close home. When we know or are aware that we aren't living as he would have us, we should lack assurance. We do lack intimate fellowship and relationship, just like Adam and Eve after their disobedience in the garden and rebellion against God's marvelous provision for them. Now, we don't have a Garden of Eden to choose from, you know. You can have any tree you want to, any fruit you want to, except this one tree. Now, we, that's not our choice, but we do have choices. Uh, we have Christ to choose as Lord or refuse. And it says here, you know, if you obey me, if you love me, you'll obey me and you will experience my indwelling presence. And just thinking about, well, maybe I shouldn't go any further with that, but uh, I think that's why people often keep searching. I mean, in a sense, we're all, we all keep searching for a closer relationship with God. But if we lack the confidence, if we don't... If we don't have that sense of God's presence in our lives, that intimate fellowship. Maybe it's because, and it could very well be because, we're not keeping the commandments. And see, what does it say? Is it in James or John? Something about if you know to do and doing it not. And in our setting and the things we've been taught, we might know some more things than some people. And so we're more responsible. And some people haven't been taught everything that we've been taught. So they may not be disobeying. They just may not be aware. But when we're aware and what we've been, when we've been taught and we're aware, that makes us responsible. Um, so, if you love me, keep my commandments. And as a church, we emphasize that, and rightly so. But now, let us go on. Hebrews 6.1, uh, and we've had that in past messages. Hebrews 6.1, let us go on. It says, therefore, leaving the principles, or that's the beginnings of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection or completeness. So, finding Jesus, let us go on. A couple, and a series of questions here. Have you found the Jesus of a Titus of the cross? And that's not scripture. That's just a book. I don't know how many of you have read that book, but Titus, the Commoner of the cross, it's an older book. I just like the way that book, even though it's fiction, um, the way it pictures Christ. I like that uh, picture of Christ. Have you found the Philippians to Jesus? If you're familiar with scripture, you know what Philippians 2 is. So have you found the Philippians 2 Jesus? Have you found the John 8 Jesus? Talking about finding Jesus. Have you found the John 8 Jesus? And in John 8, Jesus said, I do nothing of myself. 
as my father has taught me, I speak these things. And then in verse 29, he said, I do always those things that please him. Have you found that, Jesus? Have you found the Matthew 14, 23, Jesus? And Matthew 14, 23 says, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. And I would say, yeah, have you found the John 6, 6, 6, 68, Jesus? John 6, 68. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we have different experiences in life, but one, um, a period of my life, a more of a dark period of my life, um, I felt like... <clears throat> I felt like I was sliding down a rope into this chasm of nothingness. But this verse was the knot on the end of the rope for me. This verse was the knot on the end of the rope. To whom should we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So whatever happens in life, it's still Jesus. Jesus has the words of eternal life. Well, let us go on. Let us go on. <clears throat> I started reading this book, The Insanity of Sacrifice. It's a 90-day devotional, and I uh, wasn't real good for me. This year, I didn't have any specific Bible reading plan, and so I'm doing this for the last three months, and I just so I just got started. But um, I'll just read a little bit. <clears throat> he wrote two earlier books. This author wrote two earlier books, The Insanity of God and The Insanity of Obedience. He says, one of the central themes of the insanity of God is that the God we read about in the Bible is still at work today and that he is still doing the very things that he has always done. It is that great truth that we have discovered through our personal pilgrimage. After a long season of difficult and seemingly unproductive ministry in the Horn of Africa and reeling from the tragic death of our 16-year-old son, we returned to the United States grappling with unanswerable questions. We were close to despair and we sincerely wondered what our next step might be or even if we had a next step. Within a brief time, we were given the opportunity to travel the world and learn from brothers and sisters in Christ who had survived and who were continuing to survive in settings of severe persecution over the next decade, we visited more than 72 countries and interviewed more than 600 followers of Jesus who live in environments of persecution and the possibility of imminent death. Much to our amazement, we discovered that these fellow followers of Jesus were not merely surviving, they were thriving in their faith, and God was blessing them in remarkable and startling ways. What we learned were life lessons from believers living in persecution who are living out the resurrection, even today. Our search through 72 communities revealed dramatic testimonies of believers who have come to know God intimately as a faithful friend, a friend who calls us to a life of sacrifice modeled after his own. Finding Jesus. Mark 12, 
41 to 44, might not read all those verses, but that is the account of the widow and the offering. And uh, you know the setting, Jesus was seeing people put their offerings in the temple uh, uh, container there. Uh, and uh, so he told his disciples, I want to point out something to you. It says, they were casting in, the rich people were casting in of their, um, see how does it say here? They have cast into of their abundance, their abundance, or uh, the word there, their uh, their spare, their excess. But she cast in out of her poverty or out of her deep, deep need. Um, so she she sacrificed all her earthly possessions. Now, is that the takeaway for us? Jesus commended her for it. The next passage is John 12. And this is the last hours of Jesus' life. And there were certain Greeks that came to Philip and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. So when that request was brought to Jesus, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. And those are strange words to our ears. The matter of sacrifice is a challenge for all of us. It is our desire, he says, that you will embrace the privilege of sacrificing for his glory. And then at the end of each little reading, uh, it's very, I mean, probably the readings are only about five minutes worth. But at the end, he has a little prayer-like thing. And he says, God, we are so thankful for your sacrifice that allows us to know you as Father, Savior, and Lord. We recognize that you have sacrificed your son for us. But you invite us to join you in sacrifice. Why is our sacrifice still needed? Following you is so much harder than simply studying about you. And that that reminds me of that Jeremiah fellow that's a graduate, that, was a, that is a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. There was a Madonna house. He was just starting on his first year promise. And I think I asked him, we had a nice, friendly conversation. I think I asked him kind of what was appealing to him about it, you know, as a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. And he said, well, you know, again, I'm putting my own words, but there's a lot of study and theology and theory. Here they're living it. That's what appealed to him. And so it's, I thought about that when I read this statement. Following you is so much harder than simply studying about you. And you know those promises, as far as following, those promises that they make. And, uh, and Alma, she mentioned this, uh, my cousin. Um, I don't know if something was said. I don't think anything was said, but I guess she knew what we would think and what probably they're accused of as far as their 
their promises of poverty, chastity, and obedience as far as chastity. She said nobody forces that on them. They choose it. And what does the scripture say? You know, Jesus said, uh, you see, we have kind of our uh, the way we've got, got scripture put together. Uh, but Jesus said, um, when he was talking about the, the um, what's the word there? The permanence of marriage. And the disciples said, uh, oh, that's kind of tough. And, uh, and uh, if I can find the verse I'm looking for here, in uh, in Matthew 19, Jesus said, "There's there be some which made themselves eunuchs of heaven for eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake." There's some people that choose that, and Apostle Paul, he said in First Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians nine, he said. Um, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord in Cephas? But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done to me, for it was better for me to die than that any man should make my glory and void. So he chose that. So I, I couldn't argue with my cousin on that one. But my question is, finding Jesus... Have you found that Jesus that calls for sacrifice? Now, where Jesus said, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. So what do you love in life? And are you willing to give it up? Jesus repeatedly called his followers to sacrifice. Those who would follow him had to enter through a narrow door, Luke 13, 24. Carry a cross, Luke 14, 27. Count the cost. Luke 14, 28. Prioritize his claims above the other claims of life. Luke 9, 57 to 62. And give up everything they had. Luke 14, 33. And I will say the gospel of Luke has influenced my life. Okay, those verses from Luke. But we know other familiar verses. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body's a living sacrifice. Many of us have memorized that verse. Philippians 1.29 For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is a part of our theology. is a part of our life. And so that day's reading he finished with the little saying here, God, we know that sacrifice is central to the story of the Bible. Are you actually suggesting that this kind of sacrifice is something you expect of us today? God, that's terrifying. I, uh, this, this, uh, the books he's written, Nick Rickton, that's a, just a pseudonym because of his uh, all of his many years of serving in Muslim countries I guess and so it's better if his name isn't attached I think if I uh, I was looking up different things about him I think when he was in Somalia 
He said there were 50 believers there. When he left, there were four. He said they hunted them down like animals and killed them. In another, another setting, uh, I think this was in the Soviet Union, uh, maybe in years past, while it was still communism, that uh, asking the believers about persecution, they said they just expected it like the sun coming up in the east. Just part of life. Uh, someone, this wasn't uh, Nick Ripkin, but someone else kind of writing about it said, in our American ivory palaces and modern feel-good churches, we are so far removed from what is happening just about everywhere else except here. But I'll close this way. Thinking about finding Jesus and the Jesus that calls us to the insanity of sacrifice, will I choose to trust this God who I cannot control? Am I willing to walk with this God whose ways are so different? Will I lean on this God who makes impossible demands and promises only his presence.